a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And today we have two Wavemakers in the studio with us, Carla Jimenez and Carrie Kreisman. Carla is a longtime Bay Area Wavemaker. I first met her when she was a lawyer at the University of South Florida, and I was working in the communications office. But Carla went on to make very big waves as one of the co-founders of Inkwood Books, one of the city's most beloved independent bookstores. After 20 years, though, Carla and her business partner sold the store to a customer in 2013. Today, Carla is an ovarian cancer survivor, an activist, and advocate for ovarian cancer awareness and she has made me aware that world ovarian cancer day is may 8th and ovarian cancer awareness month is in september thanks for being here carla I'm delighted to be invited. I like to talk about ovarian cancer with anyone, anywhere. Well, we're glad to have you here. And uh, normally this is a call-in show and we take calls and emails, but we're not doing that today. This is pre-recorded. Um, also with us in the studio, pre-recording, is Carrie Kreisman. She also is an ovarian cancer survivor, activist, and advocate. And she is the author of Accidental First Lady, On the Front Lines and Behind the Scenes of Local Politics. It's her account of her journey alongside her husband Rick Kreisman, who made a successful run for St. Petersburg City Council in 2013, leading to more than 20 years in politics, including two terms as a state representative and two as mayor of St. Petersburg. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the very basics. Why is it important to talk about ovarian cancer? Tom, it is important to talk about ovarian cancer because one in 78 persons are born with ovaries. They will develop ovarian cancer in their lifetime. That's one in 78 women with ovaries. It is the deadliest of all gynecologic cancers and the fifth leading cause of cancer deaths among individuals born with ovaries. In addition, it is the 11th most common cancer in persons born with ovaries. Over 200,000 individuals in the United States are living with ovarian cancer. In 2022, almost 20,000 women in America will be diagnosed with ovarian cancer and almost 13,000 will die. But why it's really important to talk about it is because the vast majority of patients diagnosed with ovarian cancer are diagnosed in the later stages. That means 85% are diagnosed in stages three and four. And why is that? It is because the symptoms are so vague often. They are explained away by many things that a lot of us, but especially women deal with. Um, you know, we might feel full. We might, uh, you know, have to go to the bathroom a little more often. And a lot of that is chalked up to age, perimenopause, which is up to 10 years sometimes preceding the onset of menopause. And doctors don't necessarily always see it if a woman even talks to her doctor about it. You know, there's a whole nother conversation that could be had about talking about menopause because I think if we talked about that more, maybe some of the symptoms that we have explained away, some of us, mm -hmm. might come to light. And, and so... Again, they're very vague. They call it the cancer that whispers. Well, because the symptoms are things that you might experience any day. Exactly. Like bloating or mm -hmm. 
getting full quickly or, well, some, you might have some pain. You might have some, but you could explain it away as, uh, you know, that you pulled something right. or that you overdid it or anything, anything but cancer, right? And there's no <laughs> diagnostic test that would no. show that you have it. Like, okay. for example, for men, I guess something, I guess that would be similar would be uh, prostate cancer. Exactly. You could have prostate cancer and not know it, mm-hmm. but they have a test for it. Mm-hmm. And they can test your, your, you can do a PSA, I guess they can call it. And uh, you can find out whether or not you might have it and then do a, a biopsy and, you know, you can, you can survive. And, and that early detection is important. So it's difficult with ovarian cancer then. It is. And a pap smear does not detect ovarian cancer. There is a blood test that is a big indicator of ovarian cancer, but not always. It's called the CA-125. And if those levels are elevated, that's a tumor marker test. But that's not a... You have to beg for the test, basically. And that's even if you know about the test, that something like that exists. Because if you have ovarian cancer, those numbers will be elevated. Why are they not routine the way a PSA is? Do we know? I mean, or mammograms or... Well, go ahead, Carla. (laughs) (laughs) Carla's Um, raising her hand. You may speak. (laughs) I raise my hand all the time at home. It doesn't get me in my time. But um, so here's the thing. The CA-125 is great for the people that, it's, that it informs about, but not everybody. I have several friends, many of them right here in the Tampa area, who, um, for whom that simply doesn't, it doesn't test their cancer at all. And so it's, primar- it's not really used as a detection test. It's used as a, after you've already had mm-hmm. some of these other symptoms in, um, and they've been recurring or um, you know, persistent or, and they can't be otherwise explained away, mm-hmm. after that... Then there are some things that are called for um, some special tests like a um, transvaginal ultrasound, which mm-hmm. if you don't know what that is, it is a large wand in the vagina that gets the best picture of the right. of anything on yeah. your ovary. They use those during um, pregnancies now, for, right. um, or they did one, actually I shouldn't say now because I was pregnant almost 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> they did it then. Yeah. And then at that point, if there is something suspicious looking, then they, then the CA-125 is, would definitely be um, advisable. And then for me, for example, with mine, the CA-125 is a very good predictor of how I'm doing and has been from the beginning. So what you're saying, though, is that the detection is so difficult but that by the time it's detected, people usually have tumors. Mm-hmm. That's when they find it, which is why yeah. I think... Um, Carl has mentioned before that there is actually potentially even just when you go to get your pap smear, not a pap smear, but a a pelvic exam might show the presence of a tumor before you would be experiencing it physically. Yeah, uh, even just a um, bimanual um, pelvic exam where there's one digit of a finger or thumb into the rectum and the other one into the vagina with pinching, you might feel pain if you have a tumor and, and or your doctor might feel something that doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of mentioning um, mam- mammograms, Tom, you know, it's funny, when I had my cancer, my sister, one of my sisters said, why don't we all get that transvaginal ultrasound all the time? And I said, oh, honey, it'd be so expensive. They'd never agree to it. And she said, well, we all get mammograms every year. I'm right. sure they're expensive. So it's really a... Some of this has to do with what the priorities are and what's right. fun to talk about. And um, is it insurance companies? Is that part of the challenge? Is that they don't want to pay for these tests? Or I don't know if anyone's ever asked them. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's even science, even beyond that, as to whether mm-hmm. or not because the PSA test is, you know, for men is is mm-hmm. routine. It's not expensive. Aren't you lucky? I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I I guess I'm lucky because I did have a prostate cancer, and oh. they and they mm-hmm. they caught it early Good. because of the PSA. 
Um, oh. And then then it came back, and mm-hmm. they had to wow. go get it again. So. Also from PSA, but from, also from uh, the PSA. It's a screening so test so that you do every. And uh, well, well, let's let's we, we're talking a little bit about why we want to talk about ovarian cancer and what's odd about it and why it's so deadly is because it's so difficult to detect. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the risk factors. So people who are concerned, who are, are women who need to be particularly vigilant? Well, yeah, one of the things about those symptoms is by the time they arise, you know, you're so far gone, and they were not even easy to agree on. But um, there are some risk factors that would let someone be more alert a little bit earlier if they have them. And so in general, risk factors include increased age. But it's really important to know that that doesn't mean you have to be um, postmenopausal or, or over 50 to get this. No, I, I'm aware of a two-year-old. I know of two nine-year-olds. Really? I, I personally know two 29-year-olds and a 25-year-old. Yeah, it is not an old woman's disease, which it used to be considered. So increased age does increase you know, your risk factor, but it's just because you've had your ovaries longer. I guess. Mm-hmm. So what age is it that you should be a little At- more heightened concern? Is it over 50, over 40? Well, I mean, I was 51. Um, so I, was I. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I mean, I would, I think that you need to. With the if rest you're of a the woman rest, with ovaries. If you're a woman with ovaries. Yeah. Or if you're a or person, if you're a person with, with ovaries. ovaries let's I know. not forget our trans yes, friends. Yes. Um, if you're a person who was born with ovaries, you have this potential. I think it, it wouldn't hurt to go through some of the other risk factors because they it. seem to maybe narrow in a little bit more. So increased age is one, but it's not, you shouldn't worry about it just because you're getting a few years older. A personal history or a family history of certain cancers is uh, gives increases the risk factor. Breast cancer, ovarian cancer, uterine or colorectal, in family members or of yourself in your own case, um, that increases your risk factor. Risk. Certain genetic mutations that are some of them are related to those cancers. What we call BRCA one and two, BRCA one and BRCA two are genetic mutations that um, give you almost a 90% chance of having breast cancer, but they also have about a 65 to 70% chance of having ovarian cancer. So now how do you know if you have that genetic marker? Well, you'd have to have genetic testing to know for sure. But if your family history includes breast cancer and or ovarian cancer, you might want to have that. And, mm-hmm. and I actually just recently was asked to participate in a, um, a video campaign through the CDC to, to encourage family members who have any breast or ovarian cancer in their family to have a conversation about genetic testing. It's does not, insurance pay for it? No. It How much is it? Is it expensive? It's, it's expensive. It what's, what's it involved? A, a blood test? Or? It's a blood test with a, where they take quite a lot of blood. And, um, I mean... If you're if you're being considered for it, you would have you would go through con- genetic counseling, and depending on your family history, I think that there is some time where there would be payment for it through insurance. But in general, okay, they paid for yours. They did. I think they paid for mine too. My mom had uterine, so when I came Got up it. with ovarian and uterine, they wanted me to have genetic testing. It, it, it underscores the fact that family mm-hmm. history is very important. And there was no connection. It comes to cancer, <laughs> but that's not the case for there a lot was no of people. Connection. Okay. No, they oh. just said you're unlucky. <laughs> It is. Isn't, um, isn't anyone who has cancer. But When you do the, the genetic counseling, before you decide yes or no to the genetic testing, they ask you for your family history of everybody back a couple of generations and every cousin and everything. And so it, if you, it costs more if you want to be tested for everything you might have the mutations for. In my case, it was seven different cancers with my family. Um, and, and, and they tested for 25 mutations. 10 years ago, and then they tested again this year, and now they've found 35 potential new mutations. Hmm. And so far, I'm clean. 
but it's, you know, they, they kind of test for everything. Because now there's a suggestion that pancreatic cancer may be related to some rare ovarian cancers, including mine. Hmm. So... Another so, one of those scary cancers. Yeah. Hard to <laughs> yeah. We don't want to talk about But pink. let's go back to this. Yeah, so we're the, the, some of the risk factors. Right. So the BRCA1 and 2, and also something called Lynch syndrome, which I don't know much about other than it's another genetic mutation. Um, I was and, tested for oh, that. Okay, you were. Mm-hmm. And then Ashkenazi Jewish descent. Ashkenazi right. Jewish Jews have um, more BRCA1 and 2. It's, right. it's pretty much the BRCA1 and 2, but it's in that population that it's much higher. And then this, I, this is my favorite one, more menstrual cycles. Okay, that means you didn't take a baby to term, you did not breastfeed, and, and you took the, the birth control pill for a long time. <laughs> so, ah. so that's a lot of the population right there. It doesn't really help you to know that, I don't think. But so, but so the, let's talk about that one a little mm-hmm. bit. So basically meaning if you've never carried a child, or if mm-hmm. you've never, no, never been pregnant, Right? So if you've never been pregnant, that makes you at risk? Well, I mean... And because you're, you're having fewer periods, right? Mm-hmm. So. Well, it depends how long you're pregnant. If you're pregnant for 12 weeks, you have... You don't have yeah. that many fewer... Right. Um, you know, menstrual gotcha. cycles. But um, So that's part of it. But yeah, the more menstrual cycles you have, the more chance you have of having ovarian cancer. Okay. Um, and then obesity, which honestly I think is pretty much listed for a lot of cancers. I'm, I don't really know how or why, but they do list that as a risk factor. And then endometriosis, which is a very specific thing. But that, again, a personal or family history of endometriosis increases this risk. So endometriosis is a, um, a risk factor for um, uh, ovarian, ovarian cancer. Yes, which is interesting because it's fairly... Common, very and, uh, common. I'm very, not sure it gets so much attention. No, I, I never knew about it till my doctor suggested it to me. I'd never heard of anyone with endometriosis having cancer. Well, then we're going to take a little side trip for just a second. Because, let's talk about endometriosis. Yeah, and just talk about why. Tom's like, this is a great show. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I'm going to mention your unit soon. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's a woman named um, Rachel Gross who has just published a book with Norton Company uh, called Vagina Obscura. Mm-hmm. How cool! I is just that? I like the name. I love the name, <laughs> and and we're not really here to talk about vaginas, um, other than to, as an aside, mention that the gynecologist who I heard say on TV recently that multiple sexual partners or an unclean vaginal canal it can uh, increase your risk factor for um, ovarian cancer was wrong was making it up and that's not true so feel free <laughs> this was, a, was this a man on Fox News? I, I don't think I really want to go there. Um, no, it wasn't, unfortunately. Okay. I would have expected it there. But anyway, let's move on about this great book, Vagina Obscura, which I am waiting to get. But it hasn't come in yet where I'm waiting. Um, so, gross. She, what she does is she does a Herculean task, according to New York Times, exploring female anatomy from a medical, social, and historical perspective. I just want to touch on a couple things that are very relevant talking about Endometrius, um, well, even more. Darwin's journal entry declared that a woman's purpose was to be a nice, soft wife and to be beloved and played with. So, okay, <laughs> Freud said he didn't know much about womankind, what he called that, open quotes, little creature without a penis, close <laughs> quotes. <laughs> wow. Freud said that? Yes, which they say influenced gynecology through the 20th century and even today. So um, about Endometriosis a little bit more. Um, well, no, I can't help but mention this. I really can't. Do it. <laughs> um, the word hysteria, many of us know, comes from um, 
you know, some, I can't remember how, whether it was Roman or who it was, but anyway, um, it was suggested by Freud. I love Freud. He suggested that higher education and careers might siphon blood from the uteruses to the brains of women. And in, even as late as 1980s, medical textbooks called endometriosis, the career woman's disease. The career woman's and, disease. Don't work, uh, ladies. <laughs> and, and you'll yet, get a disease. And yet, there were so many of us who were career women. And yet, it wasn't until 1993 that a federal mandate required that women and minorities be included in clinical trials. And only in 2014 did the National Institutes of Health start a branch of study of vulvas, vaginas, ovaries, and uteruses. Hmm. And not until 2009... Did somebody open the first and only lab talking about endometriosis? And it was MIT. Wow. Uh, which is, I still don't get it. Well, I, you know what? This is, it's great. It's a little bit of a sidetrack. But on the other hand, I think it's right on topic because we're talking about women's health. And that shows really how far we've come in terms of women's health. And yet, we still obviously have a really long way to go because we're still, you're still fighting for funding for ovarian cancer mm -hmm. research. Uh, right. If you want to talk about that and also um, where where is that research being done? Because that's kind of an interesting story. Do either of you want to talk about that? I can start there. Do that. Okay. So we're both involved with this fabulous, the largest and, um, and best um, and oldest ovarian cancer organization in the world, Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, okrahope.org. If you want to check them out, you'll learn everything you wanted to know. Okra, not the vegetable, not O-K-R-A, but okra, C for cancer, O-C-R-A-H-O-P-E dot org. And so one of the many programs we're involved in together with okra is this Advocate Leaders Program, where twice a year we go to Capitol Hill and meet with staffers or um, actual congressmen and, and senators to talk about the appropriations for, there are three places, the appropriations for ovarian cancer. The only place for research is actually in the Department of Defense in something called the... Um, Ovarian Cancer Research Project, where they're making great heads, head, um, and they're making great heads. headway. They're making great, yes, <laughs> headway. They're doing a great job, and they're um, and but people sometimes you can find some tension of like, wait a minute, why are we being asked to give fifty million dollars to the Department of Defense for something to do with only women? Well, number one, there's a lot of women in the Department of Defense now, and in all the different service service branches. Number two. Ovarian cancer affects entire families. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not, you don't do this in a vacuum. Your children are affected, your parents are affected, your husbands and wives and your workplace is affected. Mm -hmm. Everybody's affected by a disease that only people who had ovaries um, get. Um, and it was started in the Department of Defense kind of as a, a nice way to honor um, a particular senator, a female senator who was head of the Department of Defense. Um, she was from Colorado. Her first name was Pat. I met her and loved her, and I don't remember her last name. But anyway, it's sort of, it landed there, and it stayed there. And although some people um, really argue about it and say it's in the wrong place, they're making enough progress that others are ready to say, yes, let's give them the money. We have, through the advocacy work um, of the OCRA and some other organizations as well, of course, we have been able to slowly increase the budget there from about 15 million all the way up to 45 million in the last um, the last omnibus bill, mm -hmm. but that's still not final. And now we're asking for 50. If you're just joining us, uh, I want to reintroduce our guests, uh, Carla Jimenez and Carrie Kreisman, ovarian cancer survivors and activists and advocates for ovarian cancer awareness. World Ovarian Cancer Day is May 8th, and Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month 
is September. And um, we are, normally this is a call-in show where we take calls and emails, and we are um, not doing that today, though, because this is a a pre-recorded show. And thank you for tuning in, and we're delighted to have Carla and and Carrie here. So, you know, one of the things that I understand that you guys are doing is... um, uh, working with the College of Nursing at USF, and we can talk a little bit more in detail about that later, but one of the values of it, I understand, is you all telling your personal stories. Um, that's what the, the education component is, and so I'm wondering if the two of you would mind sharing with us your personal journeys. How did you go from you know, discovering that you had cancer, being treated and surviving, and now um, being an activist? So do you want to start, Carrie? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, September 2019, Labor Day weekend, I was uh, busy around the house, in the backyard, trimming palm trees, and later that evening, sat down to watch television and noticed that my stomach was a little bloated. Um, You know, I had this favorite pair of shorts that I always wore, and so when you have that favorite piece of clothing, you know exactly how it's supposed to fit, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sitting there, and I'm like... These are a little tight, and we were um, pup-sitting a boisterous yellow Labrador at the time as well, and she had, like, walked across my stomach at some point on the couch, and I thought, oh, it must be her. She walked across, or I was hauling the palm fronds away, and I pulled something. So I just kind of paid attention to it and didn't think too much of it or tried not to. And so a few weeks went on, and... um, I noticed a little more bloating. Um, You know, I had my first colonoscopy coming up. I was 51, and I hadn't done it when I was 50, but I was doing it when I was 51. And so I did go see my doctor just to primary care um, about seven days after I first noticed this bloating. And he kind of, you know, asked my symptoms and and all that, you know, and, and nothing alerted him. He checked like for kidney stones, things like that, and didn't seem to uh, suspect that. So he said, let's just see what the colonoscopy turns up. So I had the colonoscopy on September 12th, and um, everything checked out fine, thankfully. I, I walked away with the 10-year plan, and mm-hmm. I was very That's relieved. A good one. And, a, and a piece of paper that said, you have uh, diverticulosis, not even itis, just osis, and maybe you need to you know, add some more fiber to your diet. So I thought, great, this is going to do the trick. And meanwhile... I was still feeling bloated, and we were preparing for a trip that we really were looking forward to. Um, it was to go out to Pebble Beach in mm-hmm. California. Our son had won a spot. He was one of 78 junior golfers to oh. be able to play out at Pebble as part of the first tee programs. And so, you know, everybody was coming. There were going to be 10 family members. Four of them lived in Carmel. And so we were just really looking forward to this trip, and I didn't want anything to derail it. And so in hindsight, I, I was ignoring a lot of things. I was, um, mm-hmm. Dr. Google was my friend and mm-hmm. I don't recommend anyone to befriend Dr. Google because <laughs> you can explain away all your symptoms if you oh, want. Oh, that's funny because really I, I tend to doom Google. <laughs> I am not explaining yeah. away. Well, I <laughs> always have cancer. You can look at it both ways. You can always be dying right. or you can, you know, explain your symptoms away and say it's just diverticulosis. It's just this or that. You know, so um, so anyway, I started to develop fevers in, late in the day, like around dinner time, and and uh, they were alleviated with Tylenol, but then they would come back, and I would notice that before getting dinner ready, I was tired, and I'd have to sit for like an hour. I'm like, 
that never happens. Mm-hmm. So again, I ignored everything. And I, you know, I'm trying to fill my suitcase with the appropriate clothes for the golf course. And as I, you know, I go to uh, the mall and buy one more pair of pants, I had to go up a size and I explained that away and said, oh, it's just that this brand fits small. That's why I needed a bigger size. So we get on the plane, we arrive in California and, um, you know, I, 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 the first day we're on the golf course with our son and, you know, I've walked many 18 hole golf courses here in the 90 degrees and higher with no problem with when my son's been playing tournaments and, you know, we're out there in California, the weather's beautiful and and so forth. And I could barely make it eight holes. I felt terrible. Mm. So we left, my husband and I left and our son continued his practice and we went to have lunch. And I think by then was one of the first symptoms of feeling full. I'll let you know in these preceding three weeks, I never felt full. I never had the increase in urination, just the bloating and then the fevers. And so not that that's a predictor of ovarian cancer, but you'll find out later why I had the fevers. So um, we go have lunch. I made myself eat the tuna sandwich and salad and we get to the hotel room and within an hour I was hovered over a toilet vomiting and I'm not the mm. kind of person that gets sick. I hadn't vomited in 10 years, mm-hmm. it, you know, so I'm just not like that. And then did I was- you, Did you figure it was the tuna fish though? <laughs> Again, I was probably trying to explain it away. I think I knew deep down that something was wrong, but I was sick. So I wasn't, totally wasn't registering that I probably should have immediately at that point gone to the hospital. So I get in bed and meanwhile, my husband's having to go take my son here. He has to be here for this. I mean, it was a whole week of events that these kids had to go to. So you were sick. You couldn't get up. You were- No, I was in bed. I was shivering. I I know I had a fever. We just didn't have a thermometer with us. So talk to my cousin who lives there and she recommended the ER or a walk-in. So I thought, well, let me sleep and which I didn't sleep that night and we'll go the next morning. So I went to the walk-in. She took one look at me. First, she wanted to do a pregnancy test, which I guess it's possible at 51, as we, we've heard the stories. But she said, uh, she looked at my stomach, and by this time, it was probably the equivalent of being five months pregnant. That's how really? big I was. And thankfully, I'd thrown in some dress that just hangs. And, you know, I don't know why I never planned to wear it because it was chilies. But anyway, that's what I had <laughs> on because it was the only thing that fit at that point. And so, we, she sent me straight to the emergency room and it, it was not busy. It was the emergency room in Monterey. And so it's not like, you know, being mm-hmm. in a city like this where you have to wait for hours. They were kind of waiting for us. And so <laughs> the first questions, of course, they ask you is how much do you drink when they see your stomach looking like that? And I said, I drink one glass of wine with dinner every night. That's what I do, you know, and, and, uh, so they started to do all the tests. They did the blood work. They took me in for a CT scan within a half hour. The ER doctor comes in and tells me, you have a 20 centimeter tumor on your right ovary. And I, I was, needless to mm. say, shocked. <laughs> and oh Rick's gosh, sitting and out of with town. Me. Oh, yeah. And our son's somewhere, you know, he was on a golf course um, practicing. And, you know, and I know my husband was going to meet him. And, you know, he's calling us and, you know, he didn't know where we were. And we didn't want to say anything to scare him. So it was just awful. So seven or eight hours later, after getting um, 500 milliliters of um, fluid 
withdrawn, extricated, if you will, from my abdomen. They found me a room and um, I had an infection. And so that's what was causing the fevers. Uh, and completely separate from the the cancer or they don't know? It was an infection in the fluid in the abdomen. Uh. And I had something called ascites, which is spelled A-S-C-I-T-E-S. I'd never heard that term before. In fact, I was calling it ascites, but it's ascites. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times for women... The ovarian cancer, at least what I've heard, I'm not an expert, as you know, it'll go up and and go into the abdomen. And so it was the infection in the fluid. And by the grace of God, that fluid had no malignant cells in it. I found got the pathology a week later. Um, I overheard them talking about sending me to Stanford and such. And I'm like, I have to be on the golf course. I mean, (laughs) they're coming in to see me in the room because my fever was still hovering at 99 and um, after two rounds of antibiotics, and you know, I told the doctor, I said, "Look at the commercial," because they were showing commercials for the tournament. This is where I need to be. So, I did get out that Friday morning and caught up with my son on the uh, back nine at, at Pebble. And so, um, and it was funny. The, mm. it, in this tournament, they were paired with professionals, and he was paired with a professional who happened to be from Clearwater, and he kind of said, "Where have you been?" Kind of like, "Where's this kid's mom?" You know, it's oh, the biggest no. tournament of his life. I just. <laughs> I said, I had business to take care of. I didn't know what to say. So Uh, we kept everything a secret from the family because it was, you know, my son's week. And what are we going to say? We didn't know anything. You know, when he was on the golf course, Rick was with me in the hospital. Uh, Rick's my husband. Um, in the hospital making calls, trying to get me an appointment. I knew exactly what doctor I wanted to see since my mom had had uterine cancer. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see her doctor Mm because, you know, we just were pleased and she was pleased and he came very well recommended. So fast forward, uh, the following Monday, we fly back to St. Pete. By Wednesday, I'm at the doctor. The following Thursday, I had surgery to remove um, ovaries, uterus, and the omentum. And the fallopian tubes, and but in the omentum, and that's another another new word I use. The omentum <laughs> never heard that before. is a useless fatty lining <laughs> in your stomach. So I think that's just to make sure that you know none of this is left up here for it to. Oh, it hadn't you know spread up there, and so um, so that was removed as well. And Did they do a biopsy when you're in California. No. Because you had a tumor, but not necessarily. They just knew you needed to get the tumor out. Yeah. They were, and it was the ER. I mean, I was after a while in the hospital, but the focus there was, you know, get this infection under control so you can get out of the hospital and, um, and then, you know, follow up with your doctor when you get home. So, so that was, uh. You know, that would have required a, a surgery, I guess, you know. But so, they did, obviously, they removed it, and it was it was cancerous. Yes, and he got everything. It was stage two ovarian and uterine cancer. And I, you know, I, I feel like I was minutes, days, whatever, away from it being a higher stage. Right, just because yeah, of you're very lucky. All the fluid, yeah. I was in that infection. And nobody, after the fact, cared about the infection or what that was from or whatever. You know, the doctors are just there to, to get it out and then move on and treat. And so I was grateful for the infection. I went on to have a, a grace, great, gracefully and gratefully, whatever, um, the best word is an easy recovery. Mm-hmm. I, I was so lucky. Um you know, which is another reason why uh, Carla and I advocate, and I know it's why I advocate. I had access to what I feel was the best doctor for me, and if if it wasn't him, it could have been Moffitt, you know, just as easily. But I had access to healthcare close to home. I have great insurance. I have a great support system, and all of that helps you get better. I'm not it's not to say everyone's going to survive cancer, but it all helps. Mm-hmm. And I went on to have six uh, treatments of chemo. 
and 15 minutes from my home. So, you know, it's not this long day of traveling. I didn't have mm-hmm. to fly to my uh, chemo treatments or, or even relocate for them as some people do. And then I followed up with uh, 28 days of radiation. So I completed my treatment uh, May 26th. 2020 and so of everything okay and so yes. so you're coming up almost on your on your two-year anniversary yeah yes and so I said that you know if I'm lucky enough to survive this because I'll back up a little bit and it's another reason why um, Carla and I when we can we try to talk to medical providers the doctor um, they sent the hospital gynecologist in to see me while they were extracting the fluid. So I'm laying on this side and the doctor's on this side. She comes up to me and is, you know, asking all the questions. How many kids do you have? And what about how much birth control? All the questions, some of the things we just talked about. And she said, I said, what do you think? I said, the tumor's so big. And she said, yeah, it's probably stage four. You know, uh-huh. I, said, well, I said, well, what does that mean? She goes, maybe seven or eight months. And so oh, I went no. in. I can't believe she I went that. terrible. I went into surgery thinking I just hope it's treatable, <laughs> and then I come out to hear stage two. I'm like, yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, you hate to be excited about stage two cancer, but right, we've, you know, right. you know, Tom and Carla, we we've been there, yeah. and as a caregiver, you've been there. Well, you describe by centimeter how big it was, but how how big was it compared to you know an apple, an orange? I mean, what? Um, I wrote about this, and I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Um, golf ball? Golf ball okay. size, okay. Yeah, uh-huh. I, I feel like that's bigger, though. It ended up being like 17.9, then 10.8 for the other tumor, and 6.9 for, for another one. So it, that's to say a CT scan won't even show everything. I had three tumors. It only showed the biggest one. Mm. Um, so, or, yeah. you know, the half the size of a bowling pin, I think that's, so it's actually a little bigger. You could see it. At that point, you could kind of, once you you accept something and someone tells you you have something, then you start to, oh, now I see. Right, yeah. In that week between seeing the doctor and surgery, the the clarity. What was the whole period of time from when you first, your shorts didn't fit to you ended up with your diagnosis? About roughly September 1st, whatever that Labor Day weekend date was on the Saturday night, to um, October 10th was my surgery, 20. Okay. So it was about, about six, six weeks, weeks. About six weeks. And for many women, it's much longer. Right, that seems fast. It, it's only fast because I got the infection and everything was so dramatic that I went to the hospital, which necessitated the CT scan, which gave right. me, you know, that's, if, if I hadn't gotten the infection, I, I think I would have, I don't know what I would have done. If mm-hmm. I would have just kept thinking, I'm gaining weight, I have this, I have that, you know. Uh, well, thank you for sharing your story, and that's you're um, and thank you for the work that you do in advocating. And you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF, and our guests today are Carla Jimenez and Carrie Kreisman, ovarian cancer survivors and activists and advocates for ovarian cancer awareness. World Ovarian Cancer Day is May 8th, and Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month is September. We are not taking calls today. We are pre-recording this. We normally take calls, and... Uh, Emails and text messages, uh, but we're not doing that today. If you have a wave maker you think we should interview, please de- uh, email us at dj at wmnf.org. Um, so go ahead, Carla. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Tell Carl- us your story. Yes. I am going to. Um, I, Carrie, it's great because Carrie and I have very different stories, and yet um, we're both here because. Frankly, as I say on the Hill in Washington, we are speaking for women who are dead. I mean, there's no Mm -hmm. really other way to put it. Um, So I'm going to let you 
hear my story as quickly as I can do it. Imagine you're looking at a calendar of a week. And on um, Thursday and Friday, I was at um, a great resort out in Arizona while my husband was working really hard. I was sleeping late and going and eating a bunch (laughs) of raspberries and strawberries off the breakfast buffet, eating all the Mexican food I could handle, including a bunch of corn-based things, right? Having a great time. That's Friday. Saturday night, we go out to a fantastic dinner at a restaurant I picked out because it sounded so great. I couldn't eat my entree, and what was really shocking was I knew there was no chance I could eat dessert Mm -hmm. and didn't even order dessert. This is probably the only time in my life. (laughs) So I guess that fits under bloating. But for me, you know, I didn't feel bloated. I just felt full and doggone it, couldn't eat anymore. And and so Sunday, we're, we go home to our own home. Now, before this, this was the fourth, third. This was the third week out of four that I had been out of town and away from my home on business or pleasure. And I often would get like a lot of people constipated when you're not in your own home and eating mm-hmm. your own food. But I was not constipated, and I knew that. I mean, I had sort of some suggestion of like, oh, it's full a little, but I everything was working, so I didn't give it two thoughts. Sunday, I'm home at my own home, and I start getting very sharp pains that I recognize as being in my bladder. But the minute I, it's WMNF, I can say the minute I pee, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, uh, you know, it goes away. No problem. And that's Sunday night. And Monday morning, first thing, I had an appointment with what was supposed to be a new primary care doctor for me. Um, I had made the appointment because I was 51, and I wanted a colonoscopy script. The person I normally went to was in a walk-in clinic, a friend of a friend, and he had retired and gone to Tahiti. So I needed a doctor. Mm -hmm. So Monday morning, I go into the doctor, and I said, you know, there's some funny things going on over the weekend. So we started off talking about that before getting to know each other. And he immediately says, you have diverticulitis. I'm going to put you on a liquid diet and an antibiotic. I'm going to set you up for some tests from a barium whatever and, um, you know, a stool sample on Wednesday, and I'll see you on Friday. So I go home thinking I've got diverticulitis and I'm on a liquid diet. And um, Tuesday, I don't remember anything special about Tuesday. Wednesday at the bookstore, I picked up a box of books and I felt shortness of breath, and it seemed to be just in my left lung. Mm-hmm. That's but I didn't lose any sleep over it. On Thursday morning, it happened again, and it seemed more severe. You know, I used my inhaler, but it didn't seem like it had any relevance to it. And it turned out it didn't, because I called my asthma doctor I hadn't seen in two years, because I was so well-controlled. And he said, I want you to come in right now. And I went in, and the first thing, I, w- I go through the door, and he said, I just want you to know right away there's no such thing as asthma in one lung. Let's talk about risk factors mm. for pulmonary embolism, uh-huh. and, which is a blood clot on your lung, or which can go to your heart or your head, and, you know, that can be the end of you. Um, and so we go through the risk factors. I had none. And he said, okay, I, I want you to go to the emergency room. I will take care of getting your primary care doctor to meet you there. And I want them to rule out a pulmonary embolism. So I'm like, whatever, okay. I drive myself to the ER <laughs> on the other side of town and um, tell my husband to meet me there. And when I told him I'm driving myself to have them rule out a pulmonary embolism, he was a lot more alarmed than I was. I thought... You know, if they wanted me to go by ambulance, they would have taken care of it. I get there, and within two seconds, you know, they're they're doing all kinds of things to me, and they've decided I do have a pulmonary embolism, and they need to deal with that. So I'm getting a, a filter put into my vena cava to keep it from getting farther up um, or whatever, another one coming. I'm getting shots of, of blood thinners and... Um, all kinds of other things. And I was in ICU immediately. And um, but so that's Thursday. And so I go to bed Thursday thinking I'm in the right place to take care of this thing that almost killed me. Good. I'm feeling relaxed. 
And then Friday is more tests, including trying to get trying to see if I have a CDs to take any fluid out of to test. And I didn't, they, the tech guy says, you don't have enough fluid to get any samples. So that's a good sign. So whatever, I don't even know what's going on still. Mm-hmm. And then the next test is this transvaginal ultrasound, which is um, a large device stuck into your vagina mm-hmm. to get a good picture. Get I think I already said, have I said that we twice? About that I, I didn't clarify that. I had mine to take pictures of my pregnancy. That's right. what they use it for. Too. Mine was looking so. at my ovary. Yeah. And, um, and so, and that technician said, oh, it looks like there's something going on in your ovary, which you, they're not supposed to say. And I said, oh, my sister's had cysts. I'm not worried about it. Again, thinking I've dodged a bullet and I don't even think it has anything to do with my ovary. I think he's wrong. So I go to sleep that night in ICU feeling fine. And uh, safe. Next morning, someone comes in the door before I'm awake, wakes me up, offers to shake my hand and says, I'm going to be your surgeon. And I said, are you sure you're in the right room? No one mentioned surgery to me. He says, well, you have a big ovarian tumor and probably colon cancer, too. Of course you need surgery. And so then I said, wait a minute. I said, no one mentioned cancer either. And he said, I'm in the right room. And then he leaves. He, I, he said, no, I said, no one mentioned cancer. I hear him in the hallway screaming at the nurse's station, literally screaming, saying, how dare you put me in this position? No one told her she had cancer. And I'm laying in the bed crying, thinking, how, dare, by yourself? how dare you put me in this position? Leave me crying in the room after you just told me I had cancer. So then my husband arrives and he pushes the surgeon out the door. He says, we will find out what my wife needs and we will find out who will be her doctor Goodbye. Boom. And then we start making the phone calls, which just from luck, just from luck, got me to what I was told was the gynecologist, gynecologist in town, who was a gynecologic oncologist, which is essential to treatment of this, this disease. And, um, and he took me in as a patient. He said, as soon as I can get a bed in my hospital, um, I'll get you moved over there. And in the meantime, he looked at my records. And so Monday night, at midnight, I was taken by ambulance to a different hospital, which was a teaching hospital. And so the first thing that happens is a fellow comes in with her four or five, maybe it was only three, students and mm-hmm. says, is it okay if I do an exam with them watching? I said, look, I've been on a liquid diet for a week now. <laughs> Apparently, I wasn't bloated anymore. Um, I said, you know, can somebody look at the test results from that? Because I haven't heard ha- anything from anyone. And then so they looked and said, you're... you're your colon's fine. And I, uh-huh. they went out and got me some McDonald's or something. I said, okay, now I don't care who looks. Go do whatever because, I, you know, it's a teaching hospital. I want people to learn so this doesn't happen to other people. Already I felt that. And um, anyhow, by the end of that day, um, by Saturday at noon, it, I'd had three, I think, three or four exams with audiences. And they said that I had, um, and they'd taken a biopsy. And they said, yes, you do have cancer. And... Um, it's the size of either a large grapefruit or a small cantaloupe, and um, it's got to come out. But because of my blood clots, I, they, I had to have three rounds of chemo before I could have my surgery. And then the surgery I had, so this was March 15th or 12th or something, and by, I had the surgery at the end of May, um, which would normally be right away, like, um, like Carrie's was. So I did the three rounds of chemo, followed by the surgery. Um, which now a lot of people get laparoscopy, but no, not me. Back uh-huh. 17 years ago, now I had a 10-inch scar and, and a lot, you know, it's a lot to recover from. And then another five rounds of, of chemo. And um, I did have a, a rare kind where um, because I was diagnosed at stage 3C, I had a 10% chance of being alive in five years. And I've been now 17 years with no evidence wow. of disease. It almost makes me cry even to say yeah. it. Um, 
Congratulations. It's amazing. But yeah. it's, you know, but how it's, did you react it's when luck. they told you that? You know, that must have been devastating. Well, you know, here's what happened when they told me that. Two things. One, I already had a friend there who'd showed up, a close friend and mentor. And she said, look, I don't know whether you're going to live or die, but I know that you know how to handle this. I know that you know how to ask for help when you need it. I know that you know how to live in today. And I know that you know how to replace fear with faith. Mm-hmm. And she said, you're going to be fine. I don't know if you're going to live or die, but you will be okay if you remember that. And then the second thing was I that went through my mind, probably the first thing actually was, oh, my God. At least it's not one of my sisters, mm. both of whom have children, one of whom has three granddaughters. You know, I just thought, okay. I mean, it was like my mind said, um, why me? And faster than I could think, it, sent to, it went to why not me? Why, like, really, why not me? Why, mm-hmm. was I, why am I so lucky today? And um, I don't want it to depend on luck. I don't think it should depend on luck and who you know and who was med school roommates with who's, mm-hmm. you know, my friend's husband was med school roommates with my doctor. And, and um, I, I had people who close to me who were very good friends with gynecologists who all steered me in the same direction. My doctor, I, I love him to this day, and I think he knows that. And we all do. And um, yeah, I'm just as lucky as I could be. Now, I didn't have any risk factors at all, except not having, except not having babies or a baby, or whatever. I had a lot of menstrual cycles. <laughs> That's the only risk factor I had. I was only on the birth control pill for less than two years because I had circulation problems way back then, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Um, my symptoms, okay? Until that, those three or four days before, I had no symptoms that I noticed or anyone else did. And yet, five months before, at my regular gynecologic checkup, my doctor and I talked about two things that are mentioned under those symptoms. There's finer print that says some women also report. One of those is painful intercourse. One of them is um, unexplained weight loss. Mm. I went to my doctor five months before and she got on her scale and she said, oh my God, you've lost 21 pounds since you were here a year ago. And I said, are you kidding? I'm wearing the same clothes. Just one week ago, I had gotten a, a smaller pair of jeans. I said, I, are you sure? And she said, yeah, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Oh. I, I said, I don't think I'm doing anything, but all right. And then I said to her, because I'm so up on all these things, right? And I think I'm so smart. I think I said, to be fair to her, I believe I said something along the lines of, um, I think I'm losing elasticity and lubrication. What do you recommend? <laughs> and she recommended an over-the-counter lubricant mm-hmm. and sent me on my way. What I should have said, and, and when I speak to nursing classes and stuff now, I say, you know, what I should have said was, intercourse hurts so much that I'm crying while I'm having sex. Um, mm. Yeah. And so that I should have said that. Maybe, maybe then she would have given me a transvaginal ultrasound. I don't know. But all I know is that I didn't get any further in the conversation than that with her. Well, just you know, weight loss and painful sex. Uh, yeah, unexplained weight loss, painful sex, and then some other things that are listed in the fine print. Um, but you so, were also, both of you were told that you had... Uh, Something else. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the bloating and the right. digestive issues. For me, I yeah. think it had to do with I was eating a lot oh, of corn were, yeah. <laughs> and berries. <laughs> <laughs> he did say, based on your diet, I'm you sure you have diet. I mean, it was ridiculous. Right. Oh, that's... <laughs> well, so, we've talked a lot. But it makes me wonder if the doctor tells you you've got diverticulitis, oh. maybe you should... Um, 
get a second opinion. Oh, yeah. According to Woman's Day magazine, the month I was diagnosed is that if you're over 50 and anyone tells you you have IBS or diverticulitis, make them rule out ovarian cancer. I read oh, that in a doctor's really? office after my diagnosis. Wow. Okay. The month, March well, 2005, let's, that's, that's, let's Woman's Day for magazine. Our listeners. So if you're over 50 and a doctor tells you you have diverticulitis or IBS, or IBS, Go get tested for... Make them make rule them out. Because you can't actually get tested. Because yeah, remember, out. I went to the ER to rule out a pulmonary embolism. Right. right. And uh, guess what? I had it. So rule out is, is a phrase I love to use over and over again. And we Well, let's do. talk about that. What is a, a call to action? What can... What do you recommend... What do you want to see women do? What do you want to see our listeners do? What do you want to see people with ovaries do or the people who love them? <laughs> that would be everybody. <laughs> that covers everyone. What is your call to action? I, I think everybody needs to go to okrahope.org and, and see because this is the most respected, the largest, the oldest. And, and we have so many different things. In addition to what we do with the advocate leaders, we both participate in something called Survivors Teaching Students, where we take our, we use our personal stories to illustrate the risk factors and the um, symptoms to classrooms in any medical place that'll have us. And I just had a meeting this week with um, nine department heads at USF in the nursing College of Nursing, and they're all very enthusiastic about bringing us into their classrooms. So Carrie and I will be telling our stories to people who will be in a position to make a judgment to consider, consider this or rule it out. I think we need to normalize the conversations around it. Yes. Aside from us teaching or hopefully teaching, but sharing our stories with people with a captive audience. We need to talk to our, our friends, our other women. We need to talk to our doctors more and be as honest as we can and not, you know, thinking, not put, as women, I think we're, we're caretakers. We sometimes put ourselves last and maybe we don't think of, of you know, taking care of ourselves mm -hmm. all the time. And you know, we think another day, another time, I don't have time to go to the doctor or something like that. And then it's not a call to action to run to the doctor for every little thing. But if there's something persistent, we all have intuition. And if most of us trusted it, you know, it would probably lead us in the right mm -hmm. direction, you mm -hmm. know, more than mm -hmm. sloughing it off. And, you know, if you just feel like something is not right, and truth be told, you heard my story, I felt like something wasn't right and and I didn't I didn't want it to be anything bad and I didn't want it to derail the trip. I know that sounds selfish and then I landed in the hospital anyway. But my point is 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 normalizing the conversations and normalizing the conversations around menopause because I think a lot of uh women and people with ovaries um everything's explained away as perimenopause or menopause and that's mm -hmm. not I know maybe all of us in this room and people we know maybe talk about it, but I think overall, <laughs> as a whole, I don't think people talk about it as much as they should. And normalizing that that's an, a normal phase of a person's life as well and, and all that comes with it and, and that it's not everything is menopause either. And, and so... You just do have to be your own advocate mm -hmm, when it mm -hmm. comes to First and foremost. medical uh, mm -hmm. treatment. Uh, for example... My own journey with prostate cancer started with a an annual checkup, and my doctor said, "Oh, your, here's your PSA, whatever it was." I said, "Oh, what was the last time?" Which was a year before that. Hmm, it's doubled. Right, so he and wasn't I, he wasn't even focused mm -hmm. in on it. Wow. And so that started a series of right. tests wow. that led to yeah. you know the discovery that I had mm -hmm. prostate cancer. I was you know it was a long time ago. I was fairly young. 
right. to, to get it. Fortunately, they caught it early. So we, yeah, we have just a few minutes left. I want to go back to something that Carla said earlier when you were talking about you feel like everybody deserves um, the right care. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that it's not mm-hmm. about should be about who you know. And exactly. I think all of us in this room are are pretty privileged people. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and so. What elaborate on that a little bit more? I mean, is it are there are, are minority women or women yeah. of color, people with ovaries of color more at risk, and why is that? Well, you know, I I mean, I don't think we really know necessarily how the numbers are different, but I do have some some statistics here about the incidence rates, and um, these go back from 2004 to 2018, so they're not entirely up to date, but they're informative. The highest number, the highest percentage of people, um, well, the, the highest incidence of ovarian cancer diagnoses is in American Indian and Alaskan Natives, hmm. and which and there's no, we don't know why. No one knows why. The next highest, interestingly, is non-Hispanic white, then Hispanic, then Asian and Pacific Islander, and the lowest is non-Hispanic black in terms of the incidence of oh, the diagnosis. And yet, you can't stop there with these figures, right? Because one of the interesting things is if you look at the five-year survival rate, and again, blacks have a much lower incidence than whites. In fact, um, the, in over a five-year period, the survival rate for ovarian cancer in, in um, white women went up 15% at the same time it went down 3% for, for, for black, black women. women. And then that might be and, because and of that care. It could be to access care. to care, other socioeconomic factors. And also, honestly, I learned from doing the, um, the video workshop with ovarian and breast cancer folks that speaking about cancer in the black community is apparently um, really kind of a cultural issue um, because people blame each other and say, oh, it's you're just eating too much or it's your bad diet or whatever, you know, which mm-hmm. is hor- was horrible for me to hear from several black women with a lot of breast cancer in their families. They were saying they couldn't get anyone to even talk about it. Obviously, you can't um, generalize from that experience that I no. had. But, um, but cultural, you know, taboos and... Um, but clearly, to me, access to health care is huge, huge. We don't even have... The whole state of Alaska only had one gynecologic oncologist mm-hmm. not that many years ago, maybe seven or eight years ago. There's actually a great movie um, made by gynecologic oncologist musicians. They put together a band. And, um, <laughs> okay. And, and I, I've seen it in Tampa twice, so maybe we'll get it back here again during Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. Mm-hmm. It's a great little movie. <laughs> That's funny. So... Um, like I said, as we said, this show has been pre-recorded, but we're hoping that we'll see on May 8th, which is um, ovarian, World Ovarian Cancer Day, that we will see um, the color teal around town, perhaps on the um, Skyway Bridge. I know Carla's working on that. Um, and then maybe we'll see that again in September for, um, uh, for uh, Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. Thank you so much to both of you for being here. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for um, having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks in. for all the work that you're doing, and um, I hope that we reach some people today. Yeah. Public awareness will. is what this is all about. Exactly. We could be saving lives mm-hmm. right here sitting in the studio, literally saving lives. Mm-hmm. It's um, really important and sobering. Thank you very much, and stay tuned for um, NPR News up next, followed by Harrison Nash, who will be spinning some great music for you for the next three hours. This is WMNF in Tampa. Thank <laughs> you.